went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. Ooh, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we do give thanks to you with our whole being because you have revealed yourself to us, your great creational design and your redemptive plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth. We ask that by your Spirit this morning that you will give us understanding of what lies before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It starts like this. Dear friends, we are gathered here in the presence of God to join this man and this woman in holy matrimony. I've said it some 50 times now. I had no clue that when my pastoral mentor told me to memorize the introduction to the wedding service, that I would use it that much. It was clear within the first few weeks of pastoral ministry in Memphis, Tennessee, that I was going to be involved in marriage, though. He had told me, Chuck, it's going to be more than you think. Go ahead and memorize it. And so I did. And then a few short years later, it came in handy as weddings started in the young adults ministry that I was uh, in charge of. One of the occasions uh, that I received a wedding assignment was one of the senior executive pastors um, had a scheduling conflict. He had committed to a wedding, and they needed someone else to fill in for him. And it was a fairly significant family in the life of, uh, in the life of Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, they were well-known, and, uh, and so they were slightly perturbed at the senior executive for the scheduling blunder. And, uh, and so to, as the peace offering, they sent me. And, um, and I was to conduct the, uh, the wedding ceremony for their daughter. I was quite nervous. Um, it was a large wedding. It was at 6.30 in the evening, the most formal hour, black tie, 700 people. And uh, here we go. And so I stand there in, in Second Prez's beautiful sanctuary, nervous, but not as nervous as the bride. She was a very strong, capable, competent woman, but on her wedding day, things were just falling apart. 
I don't preach long at, uh, at wedding services. I don't think you need an oration for me on all the, the frailties of marriage at that point. I just shoot for eight to nine minutes of encouragement about the relevance of the gospel in marriage. I didn't even get into minute four before I had to pull the plug on the little homily I was doing because she was about to pass out. She was swooning back and forth, and I was wondering what was about to happen. In some ways, I wanted to keep preaching just to see. Yeah. It's, and so I pulled the ripcord. We then move up the steps to, to begin taking vows. I was distracted by her and by her physical condition. And so I did the vows for the husband, and then I turned to her and do her vows. And somehow, when I had made my little notebook with my vows in it, I messed up. And so I then said to her, reading off the page, do you take this man to be your wedded wife? She looks at me, she turns, all of a sudden her face fills with color, she cackles, and the entire 700-person congregation blows up in laughter at what I've just said, because I obviously have no way out of it. I turn like 50 shades of red, you know, I can't even, it was just so awful what was playing out in front of me. In the most formal occasion of my life, I just choked And ever since then, I've been involved in the good and the bad and the ugly of wedding ceremonies, of marriages, and everything uh, in between. And so it is important for us as a community to talk very honestly about what Jesus has to say about marriage and family. It's a real part of life. It's one of the most natural things. And in Mark 10, as Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, he addresses the very practical things of life. Remember, all of this is framed inside of the idea of bearing a cross in the world. And for some of you, when you think about your marriage, that perhaps isn't hard. Cross-bearing in marriage may seem very natural. And some of you, when you think about your children, that's not hard. And that is how Jesus frames our understanding of marriage and family, that it's bearing a cross, and that doesn't mean that it's bad, but it's bearing a cross in the world as part of God's calling and that that cross-bearing is played out in this context of marriage and family for many of God's people. And so Jesus is going to give us instruction. He's going to lead us in understanding um, what it means to bear that cross well. Now, over a decade ago when I was a student at RTS in Orlando, one of my professors, Richard Pratt, had a famous saying. Okay? He used aphorisms over and over with us as students. He says, now guys, when you try to say anything, you can't say everything. If you try to say everything, when you say anything, you will fail because you'll be saying everything else. Okay? Now that's true of what happens here in Mark 10 with what Mark gives us about Jesus' teaching. It's going to be true about this sermon as well. Given the complexities of the marriage issues in our culture, we can't say everything this morning, okay? And so if you leave with questions, just know that that's okay. My time is always your time. Please send me an email because we won't be able to answer and search out every nook and cranny, okay? Jesus didn't either when he was asked the question here. Because remember the occasion of the conversation. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask this simple question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, they seem to have two motivations in their question. The first was is that the Pharisees were divided about the issue of divorce. They had a couple of different views about how to understand Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. 
Okay? They were divided. And then also, the Pharisees are committed to having Jesus killed. We learned that all the way back in chapter 3. Who had already been beheaded because of his views of divorce? John the Baptist. And Jesus is now beyond the Jordan. He is where John was performing his public ministry. And the Pharisees seem to be baiting Jesus. They want him to comment about Herod and his unlawful wife. Okay? And so they're trying to resolve a dispute, and they're also trying to bait Jesus in some ways. And it's into that cloud of confusion that Jesus speaks. And there seem to be two sides to the cornerstone of what Jesus has to say about marriage, family, and divorce. And so on the one hand, the first side of the cornerstone is that Jesus is teaching that divorce is not God's ideal. Said just a minute ago that there were two sides, or there were two issues inside of Pharisees and amongst the Pharisees. They had two different views, two schools of thought. There were the followers of Shammai, and they believed that divorce was only permissible on the grounds of adultery. That then you could have a legal divorce in front of God if a spouse committed adultery and you were free to remarry. That was the school of Shammai. And then there was the school of Hillel, which they interpreted Deuteronomy 24 as saying that, no, for any cause, you can divorce. And this was actually what was happening in Jesus' world that he inhabited, is that there was basically no-fault divorce. That if you found anything displeasing about your wife, if there were wrinkles, if you didn't care for the food she prepared, if you just found her generally annoying, if you didn't like the conversation anymore after a few years, you could be done with it. Okay? That was the context to which Jesus was ministering. And we find this in fuller color back in Matthew chapter 19, which records this same conversation. And you see the question that is asked there in verse 3. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Okay? Matthew puts a finer point on the question. Was it lawful for any cause that one could conjure up to divorce one's wife, was that okay? And if you turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 24, you find what Moses says about divorce. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of, a, out of his house, and she departs out of his house. Okay, and so the controversy was how to understand this phrase, indecency in her. Now, all Jews throughout time had understood that to be connected to sexuality in some way and mostly assigned to adultery. And then the Pharisees began to expand that, though that they thought it was perhaps more expansive. There's also some material in Exodus 21, verses 9 and 10, that also talk about further grounds for divorce that the New Testament discusses under the topic of abandonment, basically. Okay? And so Jesus, though, in answering the question of, can you divorce for any cause, how he answers is interesting. He says, what does Moses say? So they quote Deuteronomy 24. And then where else does Jesus then take them? He takes them back to Genesis 1. 
And many people will say, yeah, you see, Jesus was undoing what Moses said. That's not the case at all here. Jesus is interpreting Moses with Moses. Jesus assumed that Moses wrote Genesis 1 and Deuteronomy 24, and that they were both complementary, and they provided a uniform teaching on how we are to approach the issues of divorce and marriage. And so Jesus quotes Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate, that he's pointing to the original created order of God's goodness in marriage of a man and a woman given to one another. And so he recognizes that divorce is not the ideal. And he's pointing out that the Pharisees are using their position of leadership and power for selfish advantage. Widowed women in the ancient world and divorced women were some of the most vulnerable in all of society. And so the Pharisees had come up with a system basically of self-justification to leave their wives when they no longer wanted to be with them. And Jesus is saying that's not the ideal at all. And so this is the first side of the cornerstone. The second side of the cornerstone is just to say that divorce as tragic as it is, is not always wrong. That Jesus doesn't disagree with what Moses says in Deuteronomy 24. Jesus understands that hardness of heart is a real issue. If you flip over to Matthew 19, you find the expanded conversation here where Jesus does acknowledge in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus understands that there are times where God does sanction divorce. As grievous as it is because of what it reflects has happened, a broken covenant, God also understands that there can be a hardness of heart that takes place in a marriage where the marriage has been abandoned and it has been forsaken. And so, friends, it's important for us to recognize all the complexities that go into this conversation. That there is the creational ideal of a one-flesh union between two people. And then there is the raw reality in a broken and sinful world that divorce is going to be among us. And so Jesus points the Pharisees to the fact that they weren't doing justice to Moses, that they were misinterpreting him in many ways and giving themselves license to do things. And yet he's also creating the caveat to protect. Because ultimately, ultimately what Moses writes in Deuteronomy 24 was he brought order to how divorce was to happen amongst God's people. There was an orderly way. There was to be a certificate issued. And then the woman was free to remarry. Okay? And so Moses was protecting weak and vulnerable women in that society. And he was bringing order to a system where a harsh form of patriarchy had abused them. And we find Jesus upholding those same values here, Holding up marriage, a traditional value, and also protecting the weak, a progressive value. And he does it by using Moses to interpret Moses. But he does something further as well. As he lays out the planks of traditional Jewish teaching out of the Old Testament, he also is going to discuss what the challenges our marriages face. What is it that marriages actually suffer from? 
He says it clearly in verse 5. Because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. That's as blunt as you can say it. That the problem inside of marriage is not your spouse. It's your hard heart. That's what Jesus diagnoses the issue is inside of marriage. That it is the hardness of heart where we harden ourselves to another person, and then we can begin to justify reasons for why we should leave and why we should bail out of our commitment, why we should break what God has joined together. Now, as a, as a young seminarian, I remember sitting with my pastor, and I was asking him questions about marriage and how he counseled. And he told me, he said, Chuck, what I do is I bring a couple into my office, and I put them in chairs across from one another. And I put a coffee cup in between them. And I asked them to describe what they see on their side of the coffee cup. And the coffee cup has two different pictures on it. And so one spouse gives an account of what they see on the cup, and another gives an account of what they see on the cup. And then he asks them, do you believe, do you trust what they said, they saw? And he said, and they quickly get the point. Because unwill, un, until they are willing to trust what the other says they are seeing and experiencing. There is no advancement. There is no future for a marriage. That there is such a thing as such a hard-heartedness where we cannot flourish together and we cannot work together. And until that hard-heartedness is broken up, until that can be destroyed, marriage is incredibly difficult and does oftentimes lead to the kind of divorce that God doesn't sanction. Jesus, in verse 10, or excuse me, in verse 11, He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries, uh, marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And in that line, Jesus is talking about illegitimate divorce. Okay? He's talking about the divorce that God doesn't sanction. It's divorce for just whatever cause we want it to be. Because obviously the Bible in 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19 explains for us the grounds for proper divorce. And Jesus there is critiquing improper divorce. But the issue with all things that lead to divorce is this basic ethical maxim that Jesus has been teaching. At the close of Matthew, uh, in the close of Mark chapter 9, Jesus says that the first must be last and must be the servant of all. That's in 9, chapter, uh, verse 35. And then if you look over in chapter 10 and verse 31, look what Jesus says again. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And so in this entire section, Jesus brackets what he says by this maxim that the first will be last, and the first must be the servant of all. And the first must be last once again. And this is the driving principle that is to animate the marriage. That if you want to be great, you have to be the servant of all. If you want to have a loving and fruitful and flourishing marriage, guess what? It requires a self-denying sacrifice. That this is what it means for a family to flourish, for husband and wife to live together successfully. That this is the only remedy to hardness of heart is when we sacrificially give ourselves to one another. 
And Jesus, as he leads the disciples towards his cross, is leading them in this understanding that the way of the cross is the way of life. And it's the way of life in the most practical and ordinary relationship that many people will be involved in. That it is the first laying down their life, becoming last, sacrificing themselves for the sake of others. And friends, this is what we so often resist, though. Because even if we understand that it's true, it's difficult. It's hard for us to accept that we don't speak this language. It's not our native tongue. That we find it hard to lay down ourselves over and over for the sake of someone else. But Jesus says this is the remedy to the hardness that we experience. And so just, let's just look at a couple of the practical problems that we face, though, inside of marriage. And the first one is this, and this is one that I particularly find alive in Southern culture, and it is just that we tend to think that God rewards the mature with marriage. Fooey. <laughs> I remember sitting across from a young single woman one time having a conversation and in tears and in brokenness, upset and frustrated with God that she not met a suitable spouse, she says, well, I know God is just preparing me and he needs to do some things in my life before I'm ready to meet someone. And I said, if one thing can happen in this conversation, it's for you to never say those words again, (laughs) that that's not the truth. I don't understand God's means and working all the time in people's lives, but the bottom line is some people marry young and foolishly, and some people marry old and more mature, okay? Some people marry old and foolishly, <laughs> all right? That God doesn't do that calculus on where you are and how mature you are, all right, when he decides to bring you forward for marriage. That's not the way it works, Friends, the bottom line is that marriage is like the sanctification vice grips for many people where their selfishness is driven out of them. Melissa and I, in many ways, had to grow up together. When you marry at 23, that's what happens. And it wasn't definitely, I can record for you, that there was maturity on either side of the the aisle. And so we just need to be constantly aware that marriage is not a reward for the mature The second thing that we need to be aware of is that we oftentimes believe that we are personally free when we are at liberty to do whatever we want. That is how Americans tend to think. It's just sewn into us as the product of American society, that we are free when we are at liberty to pursue whatever it is that we desire. That is freedom to us. But you know, that's not how Jesus defines freedom. That Jesus defines freedom inside of a covenant. That a covenant limits us, and it limits us in order to liberate us. That Jesus sees that being in a committed relationship where two become one is the best thing that can happen to you because you're trapped. In the best sense of the word. 
This is how Jesus is going to view marriage, is he does see it as the sanctification vice grips. He sees it as the way of God's surgical excision of your selfishness, that it's the best way to get to it. Now, when I was young married and was struggling in my marriage, I didn't know how to ask for help. I remember sitting down with one of my pastor friends, or he was, he was actually an older pastor, and I asked him, you know, what resources would you recommend for others? I, had a, I was a Pharisee. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, what resources would you recommend for others? And uh, he knew what was going on. And he said, Chuck, I think you would like um, Mike Mason's book, The Mystery of Marriage. And uh, not everybody gels with it, but for me in particular, it was extremely helpful. And I want to read to you. I opened this book back up and looked back at where I had underlined and starred, you know, um, as to what was really important to me when I read this book. Um, Listen to this quote. I'll read at some length. Marriage faces us squarely with the problem of what to do with love once we've caught it. Many people are very surprised to find out what love can be like underneath its charming exterior. And that is why it employs this cruel and drastic strategy of backing people into corners, squeezing them into impossible situations in which the only way they can ever hope to pry themselves free is by responding in kind with love, allowing themselves to be made more and more loving. When the prison door of love clangs shut... Do you hear that? When it clangs shut, the only thing to do is to become more in love than ever. He goes on to say that it's like being backed into a corner, and the only way out of the corner is love. And that is God's design for marriage and how He uses it in many of His people's lives. It is not simply for your happiness, though it does involve your happiness. It involves the removal of your selfishness, it being driven out. You are being smoked out of your cave. Mason goes on to use the illustration that in marriage, it's like having a private investigator constantly following you around. Everything about you is exposed. And friends, that's not threatening. For the Christian, that is the path towards liberation that it is the path towards freedom, that we don't have freedom in unlimited choice when we're like the Pharisees and can leave a marriage for any just cause, any cause that we feel is sufficient to leave. But rather, freedom is found in self-denial. It's found in bearing a cross. It's found in serving another. It's found in traveling through all the different seasons of life. And marriage is God's wonderful and painful means of working sanctification out amongst many of His people. And so we are at liberty when we are in a limited covenantal union with another person. The third problem that we have with this is that we are slow to accept the ongoing challenge of the cross. This began to become clear to me as a young pastor dealing with my own marriage and also beginning to walk with people who were struggling. I had a lot of young couples who were starting to have children. And so sitting and talking with those young couples about the difficulty of the transition 
from being single to married and how everything went fine and then having children and how now everything was not fine. And their wives were just like dripping roofs. You know, they, were, they would quote the Proverbs very freely at that point. And the issue was, as I continued to listen and diagnose my own self, was that they were failing to make the transition through the different seasons of life. That the season where they were single and young married, those actually looked a lot alike, except they got the marital joys. Okay? And now suddenly when they had children, life had new demands to it. And what does it mean to love my spouse? Guess what? That meant something else now. It meant coming home and changing diapers and wiping up spit up and cleaning up the kitchen because your wife was just completely overwhelmed by this little six-pound thing that can take over like a gorilla, okay? And they were failing to make that transition well. And what they wanted is they wanted life to look like it had been before the child came. And they weren't asking the question, what does it mean for me to be a self-sacrificial servant today? And friends, you can apply it to that season of life You can apply it to having teenagers as you transition into that. You can apply it to the empty nest. And perhaps the most frightening statistic that is out there is the growing phenomenon of what is called gray divorce. Parents staying together long enough to get their children into high school and thinking that it's okay then to split. Talking with enough of my peers who've gone through that, it's not okay. They don't like that. It doesn't work for them to go all over the continental U.S. for Christmas, having to take two trips. They don't appreciate it. And that it all happens because of a hardness of heart where we're unwilling to make the transition well. We're unwilling to ask the question, what does it mean for me to be a sacrificial servant today? To love in the way that Jesus loves, the way that Jesus lays down His life at the cross What does it mean for me to serve my spouse? Mike Mason again writes, Marriage involves a continuous daily renewal of a decision which since it is of such a staggering order as to be humanly impossible to make can only be made through the grace of God. And friends, for marriages to be healthy inside of a church, for them to be functioning and flourishing, for husbands and wives not to regret the decisions that they've made. For that to happen, it does require the grace of God. That if we are to learn to be last, to be the servant of all, to live together with our spouse in that way, it means that we have to understand what it means to be served. Deep contemplation, reflection on the cross of Jesus that He is the servant of all who gives Himself in in sacrifice for our sins. He does for us what no one else can do. He carries our burden, absorbs it into Himself, and offers us salvation. That we have to experience what it is to be served, and that it has to be a constant reflection and meditation of the heart and posture of all the greatness of our salvation. This is the beginning. But then to make this daily decision of what it means to be that sacrificial servant also means that we have to share in the life of Jesus. 
that we are united to Him. And by His Spirit, He gives us resources. Resources that allow us to walk in this sacrificial way. That He fills us with His sacrificial Spirit, guiding us in the way of laying down our lives. And friends, that requires constant communion with Him. That we have to listen to His Word. That we have to come to the Lord's table. That we have to pray. Those are the means of God's grace. That He delivers grace into our lives in which we feed on our Lord Jesus, and then we can begin to live in a way that honors God. It's impossible for us to do so just in our own strength. And so we have to know what it is to be served, and then we have to share in the life of Jesus, being empowered by Him to do so. Because two becoming one, it happens in a moment. You swear a covenant. But then the process of two becoming one is a lifelong journey. And there are times where two stare at one another on a, looking at a hard piece of concrete and God asks them to grow a garden there. And you can just simply ask yourselves, how is this supposed to happen? That's concrete. <laughs> what part of that didn't he get? This is just too hard. It's too difficult. There's too many resentments. There's too much sin here. I don't want to unpack it. It's better just to leave it alone. Friends, God's grace is an invitation to step into that concrete, to pull out the jackhammer, and to begin planting the garden. Freedom from our past failures. Freedom to know that we've been served by Jesus and freedom to begin to live on behalf of another person, to lay down your life. That's marriage in the Christian church. That's marriage that can be a pattern for the broader world. And before speaking to the broader world, it's perhaps wise for us to speak to ourselves, to get our own house in order, that we have good, healthy, marriages, built in sacrifice.